Hello everyone. Welcome to this ninth edition of Clarity Chat podcast. I have with me Venkatesh Natarajan, CDO at Ashok Leyland, fondly called VN. In today's session, he is going to talk about his growth stories, taking the leadership team together and transitioning from IT to digital world. VN loves to call him as the chief differentiation officer. He has been responsible for driving major business transformations in Ashok Leyland. leveraging digital for new business models and new revenue streams beyond business optimization this is the ninth episode of clarity chat podcast and here comes an exciting discussion with venkatesh natarajan welcome vn to clarity chat did you know that 83% of technology implementations fail to achieve expected business outcomes well managing technology is incredibly complex it covers all processes and everything it does impacts people in some way the function is only 3 decades old but changing at the fastest pace technology industry is highly profitable with intense marketing tech companies have the vast majority of the tech talent not you clarity chat purpose is rooted in helping you solve it challenges for business success to help you decode the complexity to help you leverage partners effectively to help you partner with business more effectively to help you manage change better to help you attract talent you get this clarity via experiences of cios and business leaders shared informally and candidly over a cup of tea welcome to the clarity chat podcast So yeah. please share some of your growth stories uh, with us you know especially what are some of those inflection points you know some of those experiences which kind of had a lasting effect on you and led to your success thanks uh, jagdish for that uh, wonderful uh, introduction i think you know if um, i'll have to start off with my schooling days because i still feel that um, what you go through in the school those formative years uh, really uh, shapes the personality of a person and it's got a major kind of an influence so the my formative years was in a place called uh, and by the way jagdish i am actually a tamilian but uh, i was born brought up in karnataka in bangalore for a long long time so i can i only speak uh, tamil but i can read canada i can write canada right i can speak canada of course right so a large part my schooling was in a place called kolar goldfields right and that's where my father was working in a public sector there and we were living in a township and uh, those days i think that those were the, the that was in the 70s i would say 70 to 80 i would say and um, still i feel jagdish those days were very innocent uh, days i think you know there were not too many variables in life so life was very very simple i thought so in those days uh, life was like a simple equation uh, today it has become a differential equation so there are too many variables in life today but i think you know so we had only to go to school and then come back since it was in a township there was a club and you had all sorts of games there the only job the only thing purpose in life for us was to go and then study and then come back and then play so i had the opportunity of playing a lot of games indoor outdoor from billiards to badminton to table tennis of course and table tennis was my primary kind of a main uh, game and i kind of quite uh, excelled in it i would say as i said you know i was the just uh, once upon a time a district champion and so but i think you know that experience of living in a township in a very very close group 
group, participating in a lot of sports, you know, makes you a person, kind of a rounded person where why you play to win. But I think, you know, you also start accepting failures also, right? And uh, that collaboration, what people talk of today in the organization today, in corporates of saying that you'll have to handhold, you talk of partnerships, internal partnerships and external partnerships being very, very key today for a corporate success. I think the seeds of all these are sown, I think, you know, for me, at least during those school days where, you know, we were playing a lot of games and holding with a lot of uh, my uh, friends, uh, many of them still I keep in uh, touch. So that's the 10 years of my quick uh, kind of uh, schooling. And uh, those were the formative years, which has significantly influenced the way I look at things and my perspective. The second was, um, and of course, I should also narrate, you know, an example where I was 11 years old and I was playing a table tennis tournament, one of those many tournaments I used to play. And I went on to beat the district champion those days. And I was just 11, right? And um, there was so much of appreciation and so on. People lifted me and so on. And that was the first time kind of beating a champion. So you never know, right? You're an underdog when you started and you went on to beat uh, the champion himself. And then came on 1980, got into the engineering days, right? And engineering, of course, um, those days, the number of seats were all very, very limited. And my father wanted me to be an electronics, I mean, my mechanical engineer. I wanted to be an electronics engineer. The reason is electronics and communication was one of those branches which was just kind of uh, in a very nascent stage, you know, you had not all colleges offering electronics and communication those days, but my dad somehow felt that mechanical engineering is like a broad gauge. You do mechanical engineering and you can branch off to several kind of um, areas uh, once, you know, post your um, your um, engineering. Went on to do engineering and I lived in the hospital. So I think that's very critical, I think, for people, for them to have a short stint or whatever stint, you know, living in the hostel becomes very important because in the corporate, when you talk of managing others, I think the first thing in my view is uh, you need to manage yourself first. And managing yourself, I think you start uh, learning the threads of that uh, uh, when you really live independently in a kind of a hostel. So you have a mix of, you know, fun and uh, study and uh, fairly, I was a fairly good uh, student also. And uh, one of the things is to have that circle of friends. So when I say manage yourself, you become independent physically, emotionally, and maybe monetarily or commercially, you still have to, you are depending on your parent, but at least various other things, you know, you start uh, taking care of yourself. So uh, that's the art of, you know, the before you uh, really start managing others, uh, you have to learn the art of managing yourself, which I really picked up, I think, uh, during the engineering day. And I also felt that it's very important that you have a very a circle of friends, a good circle of friends with people who aspire to do uh, you know, to grow in their life and career. And I would say I had some very good friends, but they were not too ambitious, I thought, right? So nobody was really at that point in time talking of uh, whether we should do a GRE and a TOEFL and then, you know, you take off to the US and do your MS in the Stanford University or whatever it is. There was no talk of that uh, kind. And I still feel that probably that uh, if that kind of an environment was there, I would have probably at that point in time, I would have taken off and then by this time, I would have been the governor of California. <laughs> in the lighter way, but of course, I don't regret, of course, of this sir. or maybe the CIO at Ford.gm yeah maybe I don't know <laughs> <laughs> so that's um, the engineering days and then you know after that uh, you kind of uh, 84, 85 and then you get into your first employment and those days uh, uh, Jagdish you know appearing for those uh, entrance tests of NTPC and NHPC and these kind of companies you know they were all kind of crowning glory and that is the ultimate uh, aim for any engineer who really passed out so wrote a lot of these exams and then got into BML public sector right 
and those uh, they i started off as uh, on a shop floor right and uh, then uh, they rated me on various uh, kind of uh, jobs it, it was maintenance and then i was in the systems department it was not it was not called the it department then and then manufacturing marketing ultimately now the question is uh, does it really add uh, value when you start you know when you in an organization you work in multiple functions or multiple verticals i guess if i look back now that has really added uh, quite a lot of value because you get an overview oversight of the uh, overall uh, business rather than being very very confined to a particular area well at the same time you need to kind of strike a balance i feel that between being a generalist and uh, being a specialist right uh, if you kind of keep changing uh, too much then the there's a famous saying which says you know rolling stone gathers no moss so i think it's important where you have to strike a balance between being a generalist and being a specialist at least up to the age of 40 i guess and later of course when you start growing up your corporate ladder you kind of get into general administration and so on So it was a very you know since I was rotated I was in the manufacturing I was in the foundry thing so data dirtying my kind of hands and ultimately in 92 95 I was in Mumbai 93 95 I was in Mumbai in the regional office sales then right and uh, I worked with a boss who was very demanding I would say and that was also in a very I take it in the right spirit and the earliest I used to leave uh, the office was uh, 10 o'clock in the night or 10:30 and our office was very close to the church gate station so I used to walk up and then take a train and then uh, reach home at about uh, when clock and this became a daily affair and uh, and he was so demanding that uh, he never used to give us even time for us to really plan a itinerary in terms of tours because i was in sales then right so i had to take off on demand to pune nasik jalgaon kolhapur and so on and those days you never had any online booking and so on so many times i used to land up in the station there waiting for the indrani express in the morning and dadar to to go to pune with no reservations right <laughs> those were the days But I guess I think if I look back, those were the days where you I really got hardened. It was a very tight schedule, right? Job-wise, expectation-wise. So I would say it really hardened me. And uh, hardening is not a case hardening, right? Uh, to be very technically putting it, it was a kind of a total uh, heat treatment. Uh, so the body itself got uh, completely hardened, I would say. And that was a good exposure. That was ninety-five, ten years, and then next five years, you know, again ambitious. You know, you're in your mid-thirties. You start uh, wondering, hey, what is it that I'm doing here, man? Should I not? So I think this thing of I. I always keep talking jagdish is this comfort zone if you get too comfortable in one particular role in one particular place in one particular job or whatever it is right i think it is important that uh, somewhere you will have to do an introspection and then see whether are you getting into too much into a comfort zone for too long a time and that's where you will have to really think over and then say how do i really come out of this comfort zone So I think this kind of hit me in uh, 95, and then I said, no, no, I need to now experiment, right? And then I got out and went overseas. So I was in uh, the Gulf for five years, and in the Gulf, and let me tell you again, my experience here is the easiest thing in terms of changes when you change uh, within the department or function itself, you are given a new role. that's the easiest to adjust the next is from one function or department to another function within your own organization and then changing your job within the country itself is the next level of difficulty and the most difficult thing is when you really kind of go overseas for the first time your job is new your role is new your environment is new right you are in a foreign country for that to get used to and you have to get used to this you know what is called this gulf syndrome i'd say so people going from here they there they expect you know 
people to have Gulf experience. When you come back here, people will expect, you know, your experience in India. But anyway, whatever it is, five years, life was good, materialistic, right? I had everything in life. But I was, again, I felt I was not in the comfort kind of, you know, it was getting too comfy, I would say, at that point in time, because professionally, I was not really happy with the thing. I, if I really started uh, matching, you know, what I'd really studied and what I was capable of doing to what I was doing there, uh, there was something which was telling me that I think probably you need to look at something else because there I was in the sales of Mahindra and uh, Bajaj. Wonderful products, excellent products in India. But again, when you kind of pitch it in the other geography, the perception of product and brand changes based on the geography, right? So it was not very kind of easy to be selling uh, those uh, products, excellent products, but still perception really changes. But that was an, again an eye-opener for me, right? Quite a lot of international exposure in terms of how customers view really products and brand uh, overseas is something which I kind of learned. So I realized that again, I was in the comfort zone, came back. And then in 2000 was the time I joined uh, Ashok Leland. So this is my quick 20 years, should I say, for 30 years from 7 till uh, 2000 of what I really went through. Uh, Jagdish, I'll pause at this point in time for you to be... You yeah, know, yeah, no, I think I think, I think think this is you know, it's a great summary. And let me kind of, let, let me share with the audience my insights. You know, to begin with a little bit of humor and a tickle. We and you have been, uh, you know, Bangalore Thambi. Okay, <laughs> you know, one of my one of my uh, advice to you know to powers that be would be that you know please include Venkatesh in all the Kaveri talk. <laughs> <laughs> He will be able to balance between Bangalore office and the Chennai office present. <laughs> anyway, that's that's just to uh, just on the lighter side. Uh, yeah, but I think a very important, you know, uh, managing yourself, being in a hostel. I can recall, you know, when my daughter joined uh, her college, she got it in Bangalore, and I was just shifting to GE in Bangalore. And uh, you know, my advice to her was that you know, if your college has a hostel, please go there and there. be away from us for a while. But that's important for your development. And it's also an advice to a lot of people who are like, you know, they're so protective of their kids that they want their kids to like be in a college which is in the same city or, you know, or, you know, if they have got a job in a different city, you know, they'll try to find some contacts that, you know, can this guy get a job in the branch in this city? I guess, uh, you know, some of them uh, are not good for growth of children. Hearing it from you, your realization that, you know, it's good for your own growth, can't say more about that. Very important thing about having a good circle of friends I think that's absolutely important they, there's a saying that you know you are you are the company you keep so very important and you know if you're if you're going to be aspiring for somebody find other people who are aspiring for the same thing oh, okay. and you know I can talk I can I kind of connect it to your being ambitious and that ambition is like something you know that kept you pulling out of the comfort zone I really like those you know the the layers of the comfort zone or the degrees of comfort zone you know, you know sometimes we do a little bit of changes here and there and you know we think that okay I'm getting out of my comfort zone but yeah you know you should look at the degree of your dis- degree of discomfort that you are creating and uh, and that's very important the other thing um, you know for all our audience is you know finding that balance between being a generalist and a specialist I think uh, if I look at your story you know the first about 15-20 years being you know just being a free radical looking around you know trying to find your own niche but being very true to your yourself 
in terms of what I'm enjoying, what I'm not enjoying. Uh, many a times, you know, this comfort zone gets us that feeling. You know, we try to rationalize the state that we are in as to why it is good for us. I think it's good to be true to yourself. Am I enjoying it or not? And you know, and then and then like you know, trying to find uh, where is your calling. I think something similar happened to me. I was in customer service and I got into headquarters, and you know, then I got this opportunity to transform Tata Motors uh, sales and marketing through CRM and a little bit of transformations before and then i kind of you know sort of got my calling that you know which is like i can i can play around with technology to transform any process around in the organization and uh, then it was more like you know okay let's let's be there could have had a career in customer service as well and i think uh, the final thing would be you know to understand that don't compare yourself with people with whatever you see around you like you go to dubai and then you try to sell the indian brands there i mean you realize that global competition and today i think all competition is global whether it's a competition for products. I mean, all the global manufacturers are here. And uh, I find that, you know, even the competition for talent is global today. When you're trying to hire somebody, you know, in your team, I think the same person is probably being hired for an offshore development center of a General Motors or Ford or, or General Electric, like, you know, when they hired. So uh, I think some really good takeaways. And uh, yeah, so let's uh, let, let's start a little bit after that. So tell us about your, uh, you know, journey <laughs> in Ashok Leyland IT and yeah. you have seen you have seen this whole journey from you know IT which is automation and what you call as you know business optimization and then you know transitioning it after the whole uh, SMAC thing came seeing the entire transition towards digital so tell us about you know like some case studies from that first part okay? and and then you know moving to the second part and what remained common and what what came different I think, okay, the next uh, thing is maybe my my stint in Ashok Leyland, and uh, it's been about 20 plus years, as you, know, as you said, 20, this is my 22nd year in Ashok Leyland, and it's been a wonderful kind of a journey all along for me. So let me cover the first uh, 10 uh, years of this uh, journey. Joined in 2000, as I said, after the Gulf uh, stint, I came back and then joined uh, Ashok Leyland. And when I joined, I realized that I was actually uh, recruited, hired in a fairly senior level. I never knew that when I was there before joining. So after I joined, I realized I was the 36, 37 years when I joined, right? And uh, I joined at the level of uh, so-called, even today that designation is there, it's called uh, divisional manager. And uh, then I realized that uh, there were not too many people in the organization at that level at that in that age. So I was a kind of a kid of the block, I would say, right? Quite young uh, joining there. And there were a lot of people People commenting that, hey, you have a guy who was joined who's just 36, 37 who was joined at this level. Fortunately, yes, that was a good opening for me. And uh, I, I got into those days, it was called the MIS kind of the department. And that was a time where we, Ashok Lane was actually looking at opening up, right? Uh, we were at one kind of an inflection point where you had a lot of decentralized systems. You, are, you had the e-commerce uh, boom happening, a lot of uh, decentralized, isolated kind of systems. And then 2000 was a time when you started really looking at how do you connect all these systems and you know get on get everything onto a central platform and uh, so on so i had a lot of work to do when i joined very very interesting i would say where we went in for developing our own kind of custom built solutions whether we did the right thing at this point in time or not is debatable but i think we went in 
for developing our own custom built uh, ERP and I kind of like a mother's recipe I kind of handcrafted quite a lot of these applications uh, it could be the marketing solutions it could be the plant maintenance system from the level Jagdish you will not believe I have gone down to the level of uh, designing tables designing the UI screens in terms of how the field layout uh, screen layout should be right designing reports and so on right quite uh, kind of dirtied all my hands but brought in quite a lot of my COBOL experience also onto this uh, when I joined and uh, more importantly I think I had a very good boss who was a friend philosopher mentor guru at that point in time he was the head of IT right his name was Mr. Monakrishnan unfortunately he's no more but he was my mentor he gave me more than anything else I think uh, the freedom to work the freedom to make mistakes the freedom not to kind of feel kind of subdued or get scared of doing something that kind of a culture was built uh, by him and I still treasure that uh, quite a lot again I would say those formative years in a new kind of an organization when I was establishing myself and then in the year 2002 right again I was getting into this comfort zone you know you're the comfort uh, you're in the government office in Chennai that was in Chennai my initial posting was in Chennai and then I was uh, told to go to Hosur and the reason was it's like the sales guys you know you say hey sales guys should not be working in the corporate office or in the marketing HQ right you, they have to get a kind of an exposure into the in the field you have to dirty your hands right so they said guy VN you have to go get, uh, dirty your hands so go to the manufacturing unit so I was deputed to Hosur and then made responsible for managing the IT heading the IT for and by the way, we have got three manufacturing uh, facilities and units in Hosur. Then and even now, we have got three manufacturing facilities. And that was like, you know, one of the nerve uh, centers of IT at that point in time, right? Today, a lot of things have got centralized. So I was kind of heading that. A uh, lot of, again, a lot, lot of responsibility at that point in time. So because you are the department uh, head, right? You can't pass the buck on. You are called for all the reviews. And that's a time when we were implementing a lot of all these homegrown kind of ERPs and so on. So you're responsible. So and that I think was a stint where we kind of dabbled with a lot of uh, things. We did like, you know, some MI, new MI systems, tried out the mobile for the first time there, right? Very, very early, I would say. You had no smartphones at that point in time, but still uh, dabbled. Again, 2005, again, I was saying, hey, am I getting too much into a comfort zone? Because personally, life is fine for me because I was working in Hosur and I had my family and we were living in Bangalore. So every day I used to travel from Bangalore to Hosur and of course you never had the nice road I was staying in the Mysore road and uh, we never had those roads and Electronic City was always a nightmare and I be Electronic City to uh, Silk Board used to take one hour always so net net I used to spend in the evenings at least two and a half hours for me to reach my house from Hosur I did not mind that but again I started questioning myself am I getting into a comfort zone yeah job is good responsibility is good you're staying with uh, your family and your parents there in Bangalore uh, you could I could have as well continued then but I said I think I raised the red flag and then I told my boss again, my mentor. I said, boss, I think again I'm getting into a comfort zone. But I want to be part of the action. And the action is always happens in the corporate office from a leadership perspective. So this was more of an exposure for me to the organization trying to groom me as a leader. So I came back to Chennai in 2005, came out of the comfort zone again, came back to the nerve center because the nerve center of IT still remains to be Chennai for us, uh, being our headquarters here. So I came back to Chennai, continued to do uh, handle uh, additional responsibilities. I never shied away from taking responsibility. In fact, I was asking, you know, you, why don't you attach this to me? Why don't you attach this to me? In one way, you know, sometimes you say you should be a Napoleon Bonaparte or uh, Alexander the Great. When he's conquering territories, you have to start uh, expanding your portfolio. If you really have to grow in your organization and you should be ever willing to take up, uh, you know, new responsibilities. And there's no harm, harm in asking also for new responsibilities, depending on your organization priorities. And that's precisely what I really did. 
2009, 2009-2010 was the time we took the decision to migrate to the SAP. And at that point in time, I was identified as the project director. And uh, they said, you're supposed to be leading this uh, implementation. Jagdish, this is a turning point for me. And it was a massive kind of a team. We had outsourced uh, guys. We had our in-house core team members of about 60 people, all put together about 150 people, strong, uh, strong uh, team I had, right? Uh, implementation partners, system integrators, and so on. And uh, I was so attached, and my team was so attached to that homegrown solution because we had handcrafted, as I said, it was almost like a mother's recipe. Then you start kind of getting that, uh, you, you are so attached, you're not getting emotionally kind of involved in this, in driving the new thing, right? I somewhere felt I was also one one of my friend came and, and one of my manager he was literally in tears he said sir we and sir we have done so much we have to dump all these things and then get onto this new platform how do we do this right I, at that point in time I said guy we will have to move forward we will have to pluck that uh, attachment from your heart and then I kept it in the uh, the coffin ready to be buried I realized that if I don't pull that out as an attachment that attachment right of what you were doing earlier right you are not going to do justice to the role what the organization is giving you in terms of implementing SAP successfully in the organization. So that was something uh, of a kind of a change. And then I said, knowing forward, it's going to be only SAP. I started believing very positive that this is the way forward. And believe me, for an organization which has got used to, uh, you know, these homegrown solutions and so on, which is so kind of tailor-made to your requirement, a lot of comfort zone, right? All users are very, very comfortable to get them onto a very, very regimented platform like SAP was no easy. And so 2009 and 2010 was the time where my boss was also retiring. And I really never thought very seriously of uh, becoming a number one. But yes, I had this ambition, of course. And then in the month of 2010, April, I got a call from my MT's office, my CEO's office. And uh, he said, uh, boss wants to see you. So he gave me a time. I went, uh, went on the 24th of April. I went to his office and um, he said, we have, we have identified you after the, the, the CIO who's uh, leaving uh, super, on superannuation. We have identified you to take on the mantle of, uh, you know, heading the uh, IT function. And he gave me some reasons also. He said, you're fairly well qualified. I think more importantly, you know, what he said, and that still sticks to me. He said, I think it's very important we have found that you were quite acceptable. And that's very important. You need to be acceptable. Acceptable does not necessarily, in the organization, does not necessarily mean that it is a weakness, right? You shake your head, right? But I think acceptability is uh, listening to people, having an open, you don't bite people, especially the IT guys have got this habit, you know, when people approach them for some solution, you know, we guys have got this habit of pushing these guys off. Guys, you don't know, guys. This will not work. Don't come to me for a solution, right? Uh, so I think these are softer aspects which one has to get kind of used to. And then suddenly when this thing was thrown and then I took over on the on the 1st of uh, first, first of May, 2010, I took over as a CIO. And believe me, what a change it was. And I can tell you, Jagdish, I was always number two. There's a huge difference between being a number one and a number two. Whether you're moving from a very senior cabinet minister to the prime minister's role, right? Or you are moving from a very senior person to becoming the managing director or the CEO of the organization. Or like in my case, you are the number two. You are now heading this function, right? This is a huge kind of a change which you will have to get used to. To the extent where well, it took me about four to six months for me to get used to that role. The reason is, again, when you look on, look at, uh, uh, look above, you can't again pass the buck. Everything is 
stops at you. You have to manage vendors. You have so many people, especially in IT, very, very knowledgeable people, right? Well-groomed people who come and then talk and, and then you learn the art of uh, negotiation, bargaining, right? At the same time, ensuring that you treat all your vendors and partners uh, respectfully, right? You don't push them to a corner. Because you need to build partnerships. And that's really where I really started working on building partnerships with your various vendors and partners. And that becomes very, very key. And then we went on to the implementation. We rolled out in manufacturing, right? And then uh, in the sales and marketing. And you can imagine, very large organization. We have got so, so much of complexity, so many outlets. Sales and marketing, again, so many outlets we had to roll out, right? We took this decision on... Uh, in the month of uh, September, first week, I said, I went to my boss and said, boss, let's go live. We, I think we are ready. And I believe in what this, I call this a critical mass of readiness, especially when it comes to software implementation, right? You can't expect 100% kind of uh, readiness, right? You have to judge. I think that's where the leader comes, uh, you know, judgment becomes very important. You have to judge whether it is okay. Now you can pull the trigger and then you can take it. It is like a pilot who's kind of taxiing on, on the runway. He reaches that uh, so many knots or whatever it is. At that point in time, yes, that's a kind that's a speed. He pulls that uh, lever and then it is off, right? Your uh, lift force is uh, coming to action in the aircraft really thing. And all your engines, all your engines are in full power when during takeoff till you reach uh, cruising altitude where you can afford to switch off an engine. Similarly, I think we, were, we had all the engines uh, ready and I told my boss, one day or the other, you will have to bite the bullet. Someday or the other, you will have to bite the bullet. He said September, half yearly closing and you know how important it is for Indian companies. It's not only manufacturing but even other Indian uh, sectors. Mm-hmm. Right. 30th of September becomes so crucial. Would you want to do it now? Because, you know, people know that there will be a lot of disruption. I said, let's do it. He went ahead with it. He went ahead with my suggestion. And then we went live for uh, on the 8th of September or so. And in three days, on the 11th, there was a hue and cry amongst the sales and marketing guys, uh, entire sales and marketing guys. There was a loud kind of a hue and cry on uh, saying, well, you know, the system is not working. We will have to move back. We will have to roll back to the old system. I said, no way, no way. We have taken us forward and we will move a step forward. And that's where, again, I sought uh, leadership uh, support. I, the head of sales and marketing, he visited the SAP implementation center. I mean, that's where we had 150 plus people sitting in Madhuram office here. And he came and then went back. And he spoke to the people, right? And people, we were all down in the sense, you know, there were a lot of health issues. People were not sleeping because of issues. People could not sleep properly. Despite all the kind of support we were giving, you know, people were falling sick. Quite a lot of people fall, fell sick because they were having to work continuously without proper sleep and so on. He went back and then sent a wonderful mail to all the regional managers, right? And of course, to the entire leadership team. He said, guy, I have listed the SAP implementation center and I find that the implementation is going through like a breeze. Compared to the kind of horror stories I've heard earlier of of these uh, implementations, our case is actually a cakewalk. Guys, pull up your socks, get going. There's no way of going back, right? Let's, we need to just move forward. And believe me, that month end, 30th of September, that month was the month where we did the highest sales. And I have a mail again from the head of sales and marketing saying, well done, kudos. This is probably a record where an organization has done the maximum sales in the first month of a major uh, implementation, right? When I say a major implementation, because these kind of implementation, I say SAP implementation or any major uh, system implementation, it's it's like a newborn baby. When a newborn baby comes out, Jagdish, the first thing it has to do is it has to cry. If it does not cry, there is a problem, right? <laughs> but you allow it to cry, you know, because and then allow it to die, right? So you need to have an army of people to support and the, those those uh, you know critical time when you go live, right? You can't be really really looking into too much. 
of processes and procedures at that point in time. You just need to have people to douse the fire, and that's precisely what we did. The rest is history. Today, we have a very, very kind of a uh, matured uh, platform now, right? So, manage the change. So, I think it's very important. The, the takeaway here is the management, and I mean, people know, but this is something which I want to reiterate that uh, leadership support, management support is very critical in these kind of change management. So, I say if you don't get support in change management, you have to change the management. Hey, I am your podcast host, Jagdish Belwal. I had a rich career as CIO at Tata Motors and GE. Now, as an advisor, I help organizations transform with technology. Technology is necessary for digital transformation, but not sufficient. So I help organizations with the rest of it. Leadership, strategy, culture, change management, etc. You can connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter. For now, keep listening and don't forget to subscribe the podcast and do connect with me on LinkedIn. So that is very critical. Management support and the thing is very critical in driving change. And uh, I mean, so today when I look back, right, uh, the the metric which I kept for myself was to say, guys, today everybody will be, you know, new system, everybody will be, you know, cursing the new system, saying that I don't have this, I don't. I said, my job of implementation is over. When I go back to these uh, uh, users and then say, hey guys, tomorrow again, I'm going to now change the system. We're moving away from SAP. We're going to get into some other system. And they say, no way, you are not touching the system now, right? They become so comfortable with it. That's the day when I considered my job is over. My implementation is over. That is business as usual. And then, so those were the first uh, 10 years of, you know, kind of driving change, being groomed as a leader in the organization when you kind of took over and all those kind of um, very uneasy thing, you know, initially for you to get into that role. And it takes some time, as I said, there's a huge difference between number one and uh, number two. Yeah, so I think, I think, I think, you know, let me, let me again kind of just summarize it a little bit. So you were fortunate to get an empowering boss and... I'm sure you are one. I have seen that, you know, people who get good mentors generally become good mentors. And uh, I think it's very important for everybody listening out here that you have a boss who sucks, go find another boss. Find a mentor. Your boss has to be your mentor as well. Very important, you know, thing from your mentor to come to you that, you know, please go and dirty your hand. And I think unless you go to the places where rubber hits the road, you are not really going to understand, you know, what kind of difference you are making. So I I remember uh, doing this quite, quite a few times that, you you know, I would visit these uh, plants uh, at least once a year. I you know it's like CIO coming, so you know, you can orchestrate an entire visit. And I would be like, no, I want to see, I want to see this place. I would, I would kind of pick all the transaction heavy uh, units, like for example, you know, that material gate, you know, where you are, you are, your SAP is really getting tested in terms of how much of trucks it can, you know, pull in per hour, right? In terms of whether all your automations are working or not. And just to look at your the number of trucks at your material gate tells you how how your SAP performance <laughs> and you know so these are like you know various pointers I had that you know okay I want to go and check and that will tell you a lot you know whether the network is working fine or not whether you know the equipment are working fine or not so once I found that you know queue is long and when I go inside the, you know half of the barcode scanners are broken the printers are not working and, <laughs> and you can imagine what happened to my people and the business people there I'm like why why is there no ticket for all this okay so yeah good to that you know 
I always keep saying that uh, today technology guys uh, have to be uh, really sales guys, especially in the in the, to, to drive digital and all that. You need to be sales guys. And the second is you need to be like doctors. Doctors, in the sense, you know, the things are getting very complex, and sometimes you know something happens, your connectivity goes. Something happens to your configuration, application is not working. But I think that uh, like a doctor who always keeps giving you know hope to the patient, we have to always keep giving hope uh, to the users to say that there's nothing wrong. No problem we are going to get the application up and running right don't worry right don't kind of panic and then make the users also panic so you need to be a doctor there you need to be a sales guy to be marketing your whatever you've done and unfortunately technology guys are still kind of techies they're kind of coming out of that but still <laughs> yeah, yeah no no but i think i think i think that's really important and you know i was just coming to that you know the sales are <laughs> coming and just sending a mail to everyone that guys you know it's a cakewalk i think you know the best thing it does to everybody is to just uplift the overall sentiment and that's a that's as important uh, as doing the, the right things is also to like you know manage the emotions in the organization and I think you're very right you know we need to be the sales guys to you know not just be bogged down by the technical difficulties but also to like lift up the sense so coming to that uh, 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 Vien, the other part that I wanted to ask you was like you know so how has been the transition towards digital and what, what are the things what are the new things that you had to learn and to do as you set up the you know the digital marketplace or, or when you were setting up the connected vehicle program how did you have to look at the new technology so, so you know, you said very important that you had to really, you know, overcome that phase when you had handled a system and, you know, leave your mother's affection aside and do what's right for the organization. Now, when you move towards digital okay, in terms of setting up things, what are, what are some of the new things you had to do and what are some of the things you had to forget? I think so. Uh, take me on from, uh, say, 2010 to 2010, 11, 12 was a time where uh, the world really started talking about digital, right? I still remember there was uh, the first time I heard of all this uh, smart technologies you know when you say digital it was smart technology just just just, uh, just a minute Vian. before you go forward i just want to you know appeal to all the audience that guys whoever is out there please start asking questions we will soon move towards question answers please ask your questions to vn on the comments and we'll take them up one by one please go ahead VN. So that is a time I still remember. Uh, this there was a conference. I think it was an IBM conference in Kathmandu, which I attended, and that was the first time where I heard the smart technologies of social mobile mobility analytics in the cloud. And uh, luckily, we were quite nimble-footed, I would say, as an organization, and we kind of quickly embraced those uh, solutions initially looking at uh, digital for uh, business optimization and then we kind of you know took it forward and then said how do we take digital to the next level for uh, generating revenues new business models and all that four years later 2016 right so if you ask me what are the two things which are still remaining today nothing has changed from the time i think the first thing is uh, the demand for it services has not changed it is only going it is only increasing now right even then there was a lot of demand on the for it services within the organization and there was always uh, pressure the it guys used to always be working under pressure and uh, even today i say that the guys as long as and you should feel good about it i would say you should feel good about it because your there is a demand for your skills and competence and for your service. In a world where jobs are vanishing uh, rapidly, right? There are new skills which are coming up and the skills what uh, you have seems to be kind of getting outdated very, very quickly. It will be very heartening for people to accept that, yes, the skills what I have got is not only contemporary, but it is also futurist. So what has not changed? The demand for IT services has not changed. It is only kind of improving. And then we, I mean, it's only increasing, I would say. The next is the need for robust internal processes. You know, even earlier, we were emphasizing that uh, we should be having 
some very solid, structured, well-defined processes, whether you call it as an SDLC process or whatever. Today, you, the same thing is very critical, right? You We could have got into the digital era and today we talk of agility, we talk of MVP. But having said that, what the importance for robust processes cannot be overemphasized. It is very critical today, probably as part of the SDLC, we also talk of DevOps and DevSecOps and so on. It's all talking of, uh, it is all talking of processes. So I think that is very critical. So as an organization becomes more and more entrepreneurial, right? We should not lose sight of having some very robust uh, processes, more from even from a compliance uh, perspective. Also. I think so that is not uh, really changed. And of course, that uh, general saying, you know, we were used to say, people used to say, garbage in, garbage out. That also remains the same even today with data being considered as, a, as an asset. The quality of data and especially when you're getting into an AI-driven kind of a economy and a world, the quality of uh, data is still kind of very, very critical uh, today. So these are the things which have not changed and it will continue. Those are all kind of cast in stone, I would say. These will not uh, really change. But what has really changed is the way you look at your organization. Jagdish, four years back, I suddenly found that uh, I asked my, this question again. Do I have the right organization skills, competence, more importantly, the mindset, right? Do I have people with the right kind of mindset and more importantly, the passion for technology to drive technology? That's a question which I asked myself. And I said, probably not. So for 2016, it's almost five years now, four to five years. I envisaged performing this separate organization for digital. And that is a point when Gartner used to talk of bimodal IT or dual mode IT, right? So you have two modes of IT. One is your traditional IT, SAP, CRMs, and so on. That's very, very core. That is a digital core today. And then an organization for driving this. So this is like something like, um, I give this example of a Japan National Railways. So they have got uh, a conventional track. So you have the normal trains which are running at a normal speed, whatever it is. The normal speed is much faster than our Shitabdis and Rajdhanis here, but still. And then they have a bullet train track, your Shinkansen uh, uh, track, right? Your Nozumis which run on that. That is a completely different track. It has got a different track. It has got different rolling stock. A rolling stock, it has got different signaling systems. It has got different uh, stations. It has got different crew, crew, right? Everything is different. But everything rolls into the Japan uh, National Railways in terms of the organization. So I kind of created this digital organization. And when I created and identified uh, the person to head this also, initially, of course, I'm very, very natural it is. They had this kind of sense of insecurity in terms of how this whole thing would pan out. But I said, this is the way forward, guys. Please look into the future always, right? This is the way forward. And uh, it was accepted. And today, this uh, this uh, team is playing the major role. When you say digital transformation, this is the team which is driving the transformation in the organization. So what is different? I said, you need to have digital warriors. As I said, the sales guys, right? Guys who are fighting the battle in the battlefield, the digital warriors have to go collaborate with the business to find out problems. You need more problem finders today than problem solvers. You need data hunters today. And that is the role the majority of this digital team would be doing. You need to be playing the role of an anthropologist today. An anthropologist who goes, you know, he's a guy who studies uh, tribes and, you know, lifestyles and so on, right? So you need anthropologists today in the IT organization to be doing, you know, whether you call it as an empathetic design, right? That's what is design thinking and so on. To conduct some ethnographic study, you put yourself in the user's shoe. You live the life of that customer or the user when you design solutions. That is the skill which we try to develop as part of this solution. So that has significantly changed. And you become marketeers today. You need to be marketing. You need to stand up and then talk and then sell your ware. It's not just developing a piece of code and then leaving it. You'll have to drive the adoption today. And this team does that. And I said, your job is not just to develop something. Your job is to go sell it. Your job is to go sell it and then ensure that the benefits which we have been in the as part of ROI is indeed, you know, derived by 
the organization. That is like a salesman. Salesman job does not end by just selling the vehicle. He has to ensure he has to get the money back. <laughs> Correct. No, credited to the account for that sale what he has done. Right. Your job uh, closes there. And then to build that relationship with the customer. All that is part of the digital. And that has changed significantly. So the digital organization today is significantly changed. That is from a people perspective. From a technology perspective, I think the way we look at cloud today, cloud typically, which was at a 30,000 feet uh, level. Right. And uh, you were talking of uh, security on the cloud, people always had doubts. I think today, cloud has become an accepted computing model today. The first thing we look at is, the first thing I look at is, can I put uh, things, migrate things to the cloud? That, I think, drives innovation because you're able to quickly do it. Whether it is very cost-effective, that's a matter of debate. And we can keep debating. It's not, it's a kind of a double-edged sword, I would say. You have to be careful when you're doing, when you're working on the cloud. So that's a drastic change from the way we were looking at things. Even when the cloud started off, I think, about seven, eight years back, there was a reluctance on moving to the cloud. But today, I think it has become the de facto, default kind of a computing mode. And that has significantly changed from a, from a technology perspective. And thirdly, the way you look at cybersecurity has also changed significantly, right? Especially the last one and a half years or so, the number of uh, attacks and the number of organizations which have been impacted by the cyber threats and the cyber risks have significantly gone up. So the way we look at uh, cybersecurity has also significantly changed. But to get that uh, in the organization, you know, there's a lot of effort amongst the team itself to say, when you develop a piece of code, you will have to embed security as part of that uh, code, go through the proper testing process and uh, so on. So ultimately, I would say my role has changed now, right? I was a CIO and now today I talk about Dashavatar of a CIO, which I have spoken earlier also. Today, the expectation from the organization is that you are expected to play different uh, avatars. You are not only a CIO, you are a CDO, Chief Digital Officer. You are a Chief Transformation Officer. You are a Chief Innovation Officer. You are a Chief Integration Officer. You are a Chief Process Officer because you are supposed to be driving processes in the organization, process automation and so on and so forth, right? The moment you talk of uh, process, then data. So you become the Chief Data Officer. The moment you talk of data, then security comes. You are also the Chief uh, Information Security Officer and you are the Chief Integration Officer because you will have to look at integrating all these things. I don't know whether I've got the 10, but in a, in a kind of a PPT, I've got all the 10 kind of a roles of a Dashavat. And the 11th role, I would say, is today the CIO is also the Chief Harassed Officer today. Because as I said, the demand on technology, digital has gone so much, kind of exponentially gone up. You are the most, you're the Chief Harassed Officer and it is up to the individual to take it, whether you're really harassed or you enjoy that, right? You're really enjoying that kind of, you're, you're kind of in the limelight, right? Enjoy that limelight. But if you look at it from the other way, negative thing, you can get bogged down by that kind of a pressure. But today, there's a new role which I've kind of identified, which I said is the chief, I'm a CDO today, but no longer the chief digital officer, but I'm the chief differentiation officer today. The reason is off late, I find my my management, my leadership are driving me for leveraging technology for differentiation. They're constantly being saying, we are, how can we now develop you know, solutions as if you believe that manufacturing industry and automotive industry will slowly move from being product centric to more and more services and solution centric, right? And you're seeing that happening and you know that very well, Jagdish, in the automotive industry, when you talk of case and you know the industry slowly, especially in the bus segment, moving from owning the asset to going on an EMAS uh, business model. Those are all green shoots just now, but those are going to become major business models uh, moving forward and technology is going to be the major driver there. And where you have to really differentiate yourself because your hardware is going to become very commoditized. That differentiation layer, which is going to be driven by data, solutions, services, right? Software. Uh, today, when you talk of software-defined network, software-defined storage, software-defined compute and so on, tomorrow and even today, it is already today, it is a software-defined vehicle moving forward. Are you get up for this uh, kind of a future? So, 
and how how are you driving that differentiation layer if you have to differentiate from your competition your data solution that layer becomes very very critical and that's why i'm saying we become the chief differentiation officer and ultimately i would say i don't know whether the role of it and the cio would be there in the next 3 to 5 years yes the cio role will be there because more and more of technology is getting embedded as part of the business itself today we are seeing this happening so your role could be more from a chief information officer to a chief integration officer kind of integrate the various uh, you know kind of a pieces in this whole kind of a puzzle and that's the way things would pan out in the future i guess so i'll stop at this that was that was awesome. that was such a passionate uh, you know uh, i would say exposition which can only come from you know somebody who has really practiced it lived it you know day in and day out but you know i mean just just playing it back the, the purpose i mean what i gathered from you know from what you said i think the purpose remains the same you know whether it is you know whether it is the strength of the processes i was saying the demand is for it services yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 the demand for it services there the problem solver i mean so so those fundamental purposes remain the same but i think the skills uh, what are needed are different you need problem solvers you need marketers you need people who are like right can who can who can play on front foot it typically plays on the back foot also because of the number of demands and the number of backlog that it carry but you know and the and the whole uh, adoption of cloud i mean i remember the first time the i sort of looked at and i said listen guys i mean for the cost it just gives you the kind of speed you know which cannot be matched by your traditional process of you know like defining your entire form and then you know going through a procurement process and then going through a six week uh, you know cycle of <laughs> uh, procurement and installation and you know especially if you have to do if you have to really do too many experiments out there when are you going to run this process why not just do it on the cloud and then figure out you know where you really want and i think a good example of that would be you know something in telematics you know where the amount of data is and the number of technologies that you need to implement to really get that experience out just you know very near impossible without without it so uh, we have some questions coming here and hey vijay good to see uh, you know you are attending clarity chat where you were a speaker once <laughs> where you were a guest once so his question i think you can read it vian uh, As Vijay says, I've seen that quite often pushback against adopting newer cutting-edge technologies comes from the IT team. Is there a, any way to address this while not splitting the team in two? Vijay, I think in our organization, I've not really faced this kind of a scenario where there is a resistance, right? While I say that there are two kind of tracks. right one is the traditional it and the other is a digital track i think it's very important from a leader perspective that uh, you view this uh, as equally important right when i say that innovation is is the life the is the blood and the lifeline of uh, the uh, digital team that does not necessarily mean that innovation does not apply to the traditional it no it applies to them also and whatever they do they do is also kind of and there is innovation also happening on that uh, thing also whether you're moving from from an sap hana platform into an S4 HANA platform which is a kind of a newer technology whether you're implementing any of the supply chain solution uh, solution platforms so there's a lot of things which are happening there also in terms of technology change so i think it's very important that uh, the team also recognizes and they recognize that there's a lot of things changing and their role is also very important because they are the ones who really create this digital core if you don't have a robust kind of a core or a foundation or uh, a very very robust bedrock it is like a bedrock of the entire uh, of the entire uh, digital solutions platforms if you do not have that uh, then you cannot have a very very robust front end if you have to deliver this unique kind of a customer experience to you know your customers very very exponential 
digital improvement in UX and so on. I think it's very important that the traditional IT, they play a very, very critical role. And uh, so far, I've not really had a thing where you find a resistance in terms of adopting the new technologies. I think it's a way, it all depends on how you look at it. And it also depends on how you kind of drive that transformation because the internal transformation is also very important. And this is where I take this example of uh, Sadhguru. Sadhguru talks of inner uh, engineering, uh, Jagdish, you know, that is, you can't control the outside, but there is certainly something which you can control within yourself. And this is where I tell my team also, this inner engineering is applicable even to the organization and to the every function also. You look at how are you operating first. You don't have much of a control in the external environment, right? In terms of making your processes robust and so on. I think this whole process of inner engineering, we call it, right? Also helps you to kind of manage change, accept change, embrace change, look at uh, embracing new technologies and so on. So that is something which we drive in the organization. One of those is inner engineering. And uh, thanks to Sadhguru for that uh, concept. So uh, maybe, you know, like I, let me, let me add my bit to it. I think the, the core principle of change management and Vijay, we talked about it in our clarity chat is like, you know, Marosu, what is in it for me? So I think as long as we are able to answer that question for everyone in the organization. So I remember, you know, the first thing what I did uh, when I, I was strengthening the team around in 2009-10 was to hire actually infrastructure team. We didn't have a solid team there. And then, you know, the first thing when we started doing this digital transformation was, you know, these guys getting insecure that, you know, oh, we are moving to the cloud. So, you know, why did you hire a data center manager, right? And then, you know, I think the first thing is sometimes we start transformation that we put we put somebody new and then we ask him to transform. I think, no, you know, it is to, it should be an opportunity for your team also to upgrade themselves. So I told everyone that, guys, everybody has a participation in this. So, you know, we conducted some training programs which were specific to, like, for example, we trained our infrastructure guys on the cloud, right? We trained uh, you know, our networking guys on, you know, whatever new kind of stuff was coming. Like, for example, you know, Saturday afternoon, I'm sleepy. You know, it is like, you know, this, what do you call, setting up, you know, your private networks, uh, IPVPN, right? So, so those kind of things. And, uh, you know, everybody really found a play that something I can contribute here. And that's what really, you know, made it a, makes it a movement. You just put one person and that one person is driving, it might not make it. So coming back, uh, you know, questions, we have lots of them. So there's a question from Giridhar. Oh, he's asking any traces of increase in revenue due to digitization in manufacturing sector, rather auto sector. So we and what do you see there? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of now, now today, you talk a lot of this word called monetization has really gained a lot of traction uh, in the last one year or so. Right? We were really not talking often. Uh, recently, I think um, one of those SAP summits or whatever, I spoke on the fine art of data monetization, right? So you talk of how do you monetize data? And uh, so when you talk of this, when you talk of monetizing whatever investments you have made on IT, right? Could be a core platforms, it could be a digital platforms and solutions, right? So are you seeing an increase in the revenue? I think it is uh, from a manufacturing industry perspective, the, the intention is that, right? And when you look at monetization, there are two parts to it. One is your indirect monetization and uh, the other is your direct monetization. And uh, I mean, that's full-fledged kind of half an hour presentation I've uh, kind of done. But when you talk of direct uh, monetization in terms of your subscription for your platforms or whatever you want, but that could be very, very small at this point in time, right? But as this industry moves into more and more of solutions where, you know, people don't own assets, they would want to have, uh, you know, these uh, paper use kind of a model, right? That's where I think, you know, your uh, your whole platform, you could, you could look at that in terms of how do you kind of monitor. Even today, we have 
got quite a few of these solutions which we provide as part of a connected vehicle solution, which we generate uh, revenue. For example, we have a data as a service. We provide raw data, sometimes massage data from a connected vehicle to some of our uh, customers. And for example, somebody who's carrying, say, Hyundai cars, he's a transporter, and Hyundai is, you know, they they have a need for tracking those vehicles. So we provide relevant data through APIs. We monetize that, right? But at this point in time, does it make? Is it big money? Are you making? And no, not at this point in time. So that will also call for a change in the business model, which will happen. It will take some time, about five years or so. This whole thing is going to change. But I'm, I truly believe that revenue from uh, solutions is the way forward. And you should be prepared mentally. Organization should be prepared mentally to be looking at not making money from these monolithic kind of sources of revenue, like selling products or whatever it is. Moving, it could be solutions. And these solutions could be, you know, you would earn micro revenues from micro services. And that some total of that would be fairly sizable. But at this point in time, it is not very, very kind of sizable at this uh, point in time. But moving forward, yes, I think so that's a way. So, I mean, just my two cents on that, uh, just to add to what you said, Venkesh. You know, conceptually, if you look at it, I think there was a time when, you know, there was no need for actually after-sales service to earn money. You know, Tata Motors and Leyland were duopolies and, you know, the vehicles always commanded a premium so dealers could make all their money from sale. Then we moved towards, you know, when more and more competition came in, that is when, you know, uh, services and, you know, capturing that aftermarket value, you know, selling AMCs, you know, refurbished vehicles, trade-in programs, all of these things became uh, important. So aftermarket became a source of revenue and differentiation. And I think it's a specific nature of market for maybe Leyland as well as Tata Motors where I was, where, you know, there's a mind. So the customer loyalty is very important in terms of securing your you know, future revenues. And I think moving from sales to aftermarket to now data-driven solutions like you know telematic or you know these digital marketplaces and all, I think this gives you that kind of lock-in on the customer where you know the exit uh, barrier for the customer is much more beyond you know just that discount. It is like that you know there's a certain way of life you have got him used to in terms of how you are helping him improve his business with data. And I think for me, uh, more than, you know, sources of revenue, it is the customer loyalty that you're able to secure, uh, especially yeah. in the commercial way. Do you agree with that, Rankesh? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what you really see, the demography of these commercial vehicle customers are also changing. You do have a lot of millennials who are coming. So what was once upon considered as a differentiator for you, that very uh, thing is changing now. What we, we were thinking of KMPL as a differentiator and the gradability as a differentiator, turnaround time as a differentiator. Today, customers seem to be asking do you offer a kind of paper as you go kind of a model? Can you pro- help me with your digital solutions to maintain my fleet better, right? Can you kind of get into more and more of remote diagnosis and uh, repairs? This is the kind of conversation uh, and the change and the flavor in the conversation which we are seeing. So customers largely are also driving a lot of these transformations in the in the organization. And I, you know, I, I see this like the second generation of second generation effect. So a lot of these businesses, traditional businesses are now being taken over by the next generation which is all like <laughs> educated uh, uh, you know, in good uh, foreign universities and they come back and they see that, you know, that how how far behind we are from the economies that they have seen and experienced, right? So anyway, so many, many other questions. So let's move forward. So Miraj Vashi is asking, can you please share the top three, top five suggestions on selling the solution, driving the change in a top-down manner, especially when there may be a cultural resistance of adopting the oh. Now, this is again from an organization point of view. 
but especially a data-driven organization, you say, I think, uh, Miraj, a very valid question, I thought. In fact, last year, we launched this uh, initiative called a data-driven organization, right? Uh, which basically centered around saying, hey, how do you make this organization use more and more of data, right? The moment you say data as an asset, because even IP has got, uh, IPs are considered as an asset and it gets into your balance sheet map on the asset side. The day is not far off where even when you say data as an asset and especially with these data protection laws and all that coming up, right? It's only a matter of time before, you know, data is also considered inventorized, right? And then it appears on the asset side. So to that extent, how do you protect this asset? How do you use this effect effectively is the question which organizations have to address. So as part of that, we had a data-driven, we had a set of action points. In fact, Miraj, if you really share your email ID, I can probably kind of give you some more insights on what probably we have done in terms of a set of actions where, more importantly, we have now, I launched what is called a digital leadership program. Because one of the things we observe is how do you get the senior leadership onboarded to your digital journey? And as a, as a CIO, if you believe that you're always a couple of years ahead in terms of your thinking, technology, and so on, it's very important that you are like an engine and you'll have to drive the bogies, correct? You can't be detached and then you zip off, right? You have 21 uh, compartments which need to be built, uh, pulled. That includes your senior level uh, management, your middle management, and so on, right? So how much of power you have in your locomotive engine, right? You'll have to pull. So we launched what is called this digital leadership program. Basically, the first thing is to create more and more of awareness. Every opportunity we get, we kind of present something to this leadership team, right? Now, various things. For example, I'm saying day after tomorrow, not day after tomorrow, no, yeah, today Saturday, yeah, day after tomorrow, Monday. Monday, 5 o'clock, I have a presentation on what we have done on uh, RPA, right? So introducing that concept of RPA. Last uh, last month, we had a digital leadership program. We introduced, I mean, on our AI platform, which we call it as Hubble.ai and so on. Um, the power of AI in terms of predictions, in terms of recommendations, in terms of computer vision technology, video analytics, and so on. So, and use cases, more importantly, what others have done. It's very important you bring in that outside in view to your organization and then say, what is it that you have planned and what is it that we have done? So that is a consistent kind of a thing which we do. And then, uh, you know, have these sessions for these senior leadership so that you actually kind of, they begin to kind of appreciate, you know, the power. They all understand the power of technology, but they may not know the nuances of that. For example, all of a sudden you say RPA, right? Well, what is RPA, right? So kind of you spend some time on kind of demystifying a lot of these things. That's one of the action points apart from several other things which we have done uh, in terms of creating and pushing, driving more and more of data literacy in the organization to make the organization more, you know, to build this so-called, as Gartner calls it, as digital dexterity in the organization. No, I think, I think I, I mean, um, all the great points, I have also seen some of my fellow CIOs, you know, running these digital uh, you know, programs or digital transformation programs for business leaders. Okay, And these are like, you know, hand-picked leaders who have got, you know, some potential for driving, you know, uh, technology programs from a business point of view, from a business transformation point of view. And, you know, you basically train them on these concepts. I think, Miraj, uh, the only thing I would like to add here is that I've seen that with senior leaders, you know, these things are many times not best discussed in a in a committee format. Like, you know, you're making a presentation then. They would just listen to you. Because see, in a, in a committee format, nobody wants to look as dumb. Okay? So many a times it is better to discuss in a one-on-one format with them more in terms of educating them what it is as Vian said you know bringing an outside in point of view and answering a lot of their questions which they will not ask you in forum 
in a committee or in a you know in, in a management forum and then you know giving them feeding them some more information which will basically you know make them understand appreciate as well as like you know talk confidently in front of others i think that's a bit of digital empowerment that we need to give to the senior leaders it's you know somewhat bit of reverse mentoring that we have talked about earlier so you have lots of questions i am also aware of time as well as your time uh, and i know it's a saturday so a quick one on throwing some light on digitalization in design and engineering function maybe a one minute response Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Quick one, uh, you want me to answer this in a minute? I will just answer this. Sure, sure. Uh, Mr. Minanath, I think it's a nice question because for, you know, I always say in an automotive industry, there's so much of, uh, you know, we only talk of uh, the ERPs and the CRMs and the digital platforms and so on. And if you consider that as uh, the Pacific Ocean in terms of the size, in an automotive industry, your engineering IT and what's happening in your design centers and so on, right? Your product development center. In an automotive thing, you know, your CAD platforms, your PM, PLM platforms, your testing, simulation platforms, and so on. That is also a huge kind of an IT landscape, I would say. And that is equivalent to an Atlantic Ocean. Atlantic Ocean is smaller than the Pacific Ocean, but uh, not very small. That's also fairly big compared to the Pacific Ocean, right? So I think in terms of mature, I think, you know, your the front end, you know, your business application and that your Pacific Ocean is a little more kind of an advanced, but there's a lot of scope to do in terms of digitalization and more of bringing in AI into this uh, design and engineering area, right? And also driving analytics and uh, so on. So you have a lot of new concepts like generative designs and so on, right, in this uh, thing. But I think there's a lot of catching up to do in this area, which I said is Atlantic Ocean. People don't look at that. And you have the third layer, which I always say, which is beyond this, which is your industrial IoT layer. You know, especially uh, old organizations like us, uh, we suddenly find that there's so much of data. Your talk sensors are also now smart devices uh, with IoT sensors and so on. So there is a discovery process which you'll have to do, and that is the Antarctic Ocean. Antarctic Ocean is the least explored, you know. So you'll have to do a solid kind of a ocean mapping to identify which of those equipments and uh, machines and tools which are generating data, which are consuming data. That's a huge kind of a discovery process which we will have. But yes, the organization is very critical, I think, uh, in the... Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think I, I really love this analogy of oceans. <laughs> the most traveled oceans, you know, the the lesser known oceans and completely unexplored oceans. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity in manufacturing in the IoT. Yeah, there's a comment from Shankar, you know, fully agree with me and I cannot only be limited to technology. We need to sell our solution to and see if the organization derives value from it. Hey, that's great to know that you're Ashirwad. And then there's a comment from Giridhar and thanks Giridhar for asking that question. And now we have Mrinal. Thanks, Mrinal, for joining in, acting on your intent that you've been expressing to me for some time. He's asking any guidelines for CIOs how to handle and align with CFOs who's holding the cash and thus much more controlled situation than a CIO who's mostly seen as a cost. Great question. Difficult question, Mrinal. <laughs> very deep question and very, very common. <laughs> <laughs> well, like said, I think, you know, in terms of the impact of technology and digitalization is equally there on the finance function also. Right. And I think uh, very progressive CFOs like in my organization, they kind of look at uh, technology in a very, very progressive way in terms of ease. Or he's always the one who keeps asking, what is it and what is it that we can do to further kind of take the finance transformation to the next uh, level, right? And um, whether the CFO looks at us as a cost center, which I don't know, over the years I've been driving home this point, Renal, that the real transformation is uh, when the organization starts looking at IT not as a cost center, but as a value center kind of a function which kind of delivers value and I think that's pretty much I think we 
probably could be there, not the end destination, I guess. So the perception of IT as business consuming cash or whatever, I think that's there. But I think that perception is slowly getting eroded, I guess, as uh, technology is getting more and more embedded. And uh, businesses uh, find that CFOs really find that um, you really can't thrive without uh, technology. That's that's my answer at this point in time, which is top of my head, the kind of an answer. I can do a kind of an in-depth kind of an introspection or thinking and then give a more detailed answer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just add my bit to it, uh, Mrinal. I think I, I narrated it in one of the other chat. My boss once, and my boss used to be a CFO, and you know, he was once uh, told that, you know, how much money he uh, sort of saved, uh, you know, investment bankers when we took a loan and all. And that amount was like a, a good sum that investment bankers made. And I, I only made a comment with that, you know, if you could give me, uh, you know, even 10, 10% of that money, my my a lot of my pressures would be relieved. And so I think many times it is to compare, you know, what you are asking for with respect to what some of the other big spend areas are. I always used to compare the IT cost with a lot of other costs. Like, for example, if you get warranty cost in an uh, uh, automotive organization, it tends to be very high. I mean, maybe 10 times that of the IT cost. And I would say, boss, you know, why don't, why don't you ask me to reduce your warranty cost and give me money? So, you know, we have to use it as a lever. The second thing is, I always created a value scorecard, uh, which I used to show to my CFO in terms of what kind of this value we have delivered. I think it's always a good idea to capture the business value of IT and put it into a scorecard. Get an agreement with your key business stakeholders. It doesn't matter whether, you know, business did the hard work or the IT did the hard work, but because of technology, you know, we were able to do something. So these well, are some... We send out what is called a monthly value register. I forgot. For all the functions, at the end of the month, what is it that we have done? And then try to put some numbers out there. We call that as a monthly value register. <laughs> That's a great idea. I mean, something similar to, you know, what I used to maintain and I used to show my boss in between. So, uh, yeah, so Miraj, and then uh, maybe another question coming from Vijay. When an IT vendor approaches you for a meeting, what makes you agree to the meeting? Why will you agree? To oh, it? yeah, very <laughs> question which is close to my thing. You know, I'm very clear. Today, if you really look at the the kind of mails what you get you can get a lot of mails from a lot of vendors I receive I get a lot of cold calls also now how do you react to this and that's where I think you need to get your priorities right if there is something of there is a need for you there is a requirement for you yes you identify and then you definitely I encourage that vendor you, you know come and present or first send a mail and then you know come and then present them. but there could be a lot of these things if I start responding to every mail if I start responding to every call then I'm doing an injustice to my organization in terms of my time and my time is precious so if i have to now devote my time for all these uh, uh, things which were will not add really value uh, to the organization then it is better that i kind of have a mechanism by which you know i am able to manage that so it is all driven by what is is something which an or vendor offering which is it relevant to us does it add value to us right it is affo- is it affordable because there are certain things which are exotic we may not be able to afford that is it affordable to us so there are a, a set of filter criteria which you kind of subconsciously apply and then you know get into the next level in terms of it's a new vendor to talk to him so there's a lot of judgment which we kind of do right and i'd say there is no rule book for me at this point in time. These are all, you know, it comes out of your experience or whatever. So, but I think there's another thing is we try, try to talk to vendors, even sometimes when there are some very niche offerings which are there, it's important that you understand what is happening. When you talk to the vendor, he gives you a new perspective, right? And it's important you talk to him. But you apply your judgment there in terms of to whom will you talk, whom will you encourage. That's a very, that's a judgment we have.
Yeah, I think, you know, uh, so once I was called to take a training program for uh, IT salespeople, uh, just to kind of, you know, share the I, uh, CIO priorities or mindset, uh, you know, what makes you talk? Similar questions. And I think my response to them was that first thing is like, you know, do you understand me? Have you done enough study or have you done enough research or understanding of what the current pressures are, what's going on in the organization? How much do you know about that? You haven't done your homework. You probably won't, won't be able to create that connect, you know, when you send that mail or whatever, right? So uh, let's let's move on. <laughs> Felix, uh, great question. I have no answer. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, you got to probably drop a mail to powers that be in Tata Motors. And thanks, Devinder. Sandeep, thanks for your comments. I think we have run out of questions here. Now, before we close, I'm just like, you know, taking some uh, insights which I uh, gathered. It's some sort of a informal summary. Get out of your comfort zone. Get closer to the nerve center if you want to make a big difference. You know, when VN was working in his role in IT, he never knew that being acceptable would get him the CIO role. It is very important to be acceptable. In fact, something I heard was it's okay to have disagreements, but don't be disagreeable. Okay? Uh, <laughs> when you work in an organization, you know, you must maintain the courtesies and be acceptable. You know, must have, must focus on robust processes. Chief process officer, CIO being the chief process officer is something which I completely agree with the and you know, I and Vijay had a long chat on that. Uh, another very important thing that I picked up from uh, Ian, and he spoke about it in a few times, you know, like, for example, when you're engaging with senior leaders or, you know, when you're trying to create an agenda, bring in an outside in. That's very important. We discuss about, you know, the yin-yang of digital, you know, what changes and what remains the same. The core agenda and purpose of why organizations use technology doesn't change. But what is changing is, you know, the kind of skills uh, that you bring in, the kind of new set of processes that you have to adopt, you know, cybersecurity, cloud, it's all new learnings, but the core purpose of, you know, having tighter processes and adding value to the business that doesn't change. Another one very important was the ocean <laughs> mapping. You know, figure out where which are the oceans in your uh, in your organization. Map them and and uh, and and only after that start taking some actions. And I think the last one, you know, in terms of creating an engagement with your CXOs, especially your CFO, yeah. start maintaining a value register. So great uh, session, uh, Vian. Wow, what an insightful and spirited discussion with Venkatesh Natarajan. I loved it. I hope you too did. If yes, please do subscribe to the Clarity Chat podcast, available on all major podcasting platforms. Well, next week I will be talking to you on a very important topic of change management. So watch out for our next Clarity Chat on change management with me. 